Welcome to Deleted Saves. On this episode, Blasphemous on PC. Oh, Heavenly One, cleanse us of our sins of playing other video games, and deliver unto us, your sorrowful children, this miraculous review. <clears throat> uh, now that I have that out of my system, an unusual game appeared on PC late in the 2010s that quickly garnered a reputation among fans of horror and Metroidvanias. A game where the aesthetic was so achingly similar to something like Bloodborne, but on a 2D scale, that one could be forgiven for the initial confusion. It quickly, however, and clearly, became something else entirely within moments of the gameplay beginning. Let's get into this as I discuss 2019's Blasphemous. I have to admit, this is a unique one for me in my history of playing games. Certainly many games have had religious overtones in one way or another. Playing various gods of mythology, playing representatives of gods or the Judeo-Christian god, and most certainly in games like the Castlevania series, where religious iconography was included and interpreted by a culture where it is not common, and then was censored quite a bit when it came to a culture where it is common, and would have been seen as, well, in a word, blasphemy. But now, Spanish developer of the Game Kitchen brings to us a game that we can be described as nothing short of religious horror, heavily inspired by Roman Catholicism, and in particular, Spanish Holy Week. Which, if you have ever seen the rather extreme devotion some of the people of Spain can have towards this particular branch of Christianity, and the artwork that has been created over the centuries to show such devotion, you can understand why I say such a term. You play as someone called the Penitent One, a faceless, voiceless soldier who is a member of the Brotherhood of Silent Sorrow, who stands in opposition to His Holiness Escobar's religious authority in the nation of Custodia. And all of you and your fellow warriors were slaughtered. You, for reasons unknown at the beginning of the game, were resurrected by the Miracle, often called the Grievous Miracle in this land. Some sort of supernatural religious experience that has so twisted the culture and the psyche of the land that torture, mutilation, and bloodletting in the pursuit of religious purity and cleansing have become commonplace. From there, you put on the four-foot spiky butt plug helmet with a grim face carved onto it of your religion, and set out on your quest. You must immediately fight a boss, a half-flayed and obviously septic literal giant with the striking name of the Warden of the Silent Sorrow. And when the beast falls, our penitent one fills his sex toy helmet with the creature's blood and plunks it on his own head. Well, begin as you mean to go on, as they say. But I'm really not kidding about that. This game is setting the tone of expectation of what kind of game you are in for right away, which is exactly what it should be doing. This is not the kind of game where the players can say something like, hang on, it gets good 10 hours in. The Game Kitchen knew what it wanted to do, and what it wanted you to see, and hit you upside the face with it right away. And hang on to your holy shorts here, folks, because we just get hip deep in the thesaurus of outrageous names from here. The next person you meet is some sort of BDSM sex wizard scroll keeper named Dio Gracias, who tells the penitent one what he has to do and where he has to go. He must find the Cradle of Affliction. Man, that t-shirt with the naked masturbating nun really got the wrong kind of attention for them and their music. And you must perform the three humiliations to be able to access it. 
which I think on a good night in Manhattan, you need to pay a grand each for, depending on your kink. Look, if the developers are going to be this outrageous with the names, then I'm going to make the stupid jokes about them. No offense, though, the game pitching. There are way more ridiculous and overly wordy names you'll meet along the way, but I won't get into them here. Anyway, as I stated, Blasphemous was a game I first mistook as one of the many, many Dark Souls-inspired games we've been seeing in the last decade. Games of various quality and theme. But I can say quite happily that I was wrong about that. This is instead another genre I enjoy, the Metroidvania. I still absolutely refuse to call them search action titles. And it holds this title in the best way. And it is a particularly dark Metroidvania, too. But I will address that in a little while. But to continue the overview of the plot, the Penitent One must travel across the land, from a decaying town to a high mountain pink, to a fetid cistern, and several other locations, looking to destroy each of this miracle-based mutations, and along the way meeting various religious torture victims, slowly dying in ways that would make even the most creative of the torturers of the Spanish Inquisition blush, and probably take notes from, in search of the humiliations and whatever stands in their way of his quest. The one group that really threw me off early in the game was this group of, um, and I will say this in the broadest definition possible, healers who bathed the wounds of those hurt through battle or other reasons with their tongues and kisses before wrapping them. Like, seriously, they are massaging life-threatening injuries to bleed more so they can lick them while praying before trying to bind these injuries. Yuck. Talk about body horror and torture porn. But it gets no better, really. The Penitent One was also gifted a thorn to place in the handle of his saw-edged sword, which will grow and dig into the flesh of the Penitent One's hand as he completes his mission objectives and the condition of said thorn will determine the ending of the game. Along the way, we do learn of the nature of this miracle so that so changed life in Custodia, or at least the part that affects the game here. One day, His Holiness Escribar turned his holy throne away from his congregation in the belief that the miracle, you know, the wild thing that has caused citizens to become real wackos, had forsaken them. Yet over time, he was turned into a giant tree by said miracle, which one day combusts and burns him to ash, atop which stood Escobar's now abdicated throne. The miracle made the people climb the throne of ash to reach the throne. But everyone sank into it and came out various monsters, driven to continue the miracle's mission. So the monsters you fight throughout the game were these people. Even Escobar was turned into something called the last son of the miracle, and it was he who you must kill. When you arrive, having killed or driven off his monster's defenses, including a female knight who was his biggest supporter, you are met by our kinky scroll master, Diogracias, once again, who encourages you to climb the mountain of ash to the throne. Depending on how much work you put into upgrading your thorn, here is where the first two of three endings occur, so spoilers ahead. You will either sink into the ash and die, leaving only the blood plug mask, or you will make it and commit suicide on your own sword, whereupon you will turn into a tree and become the new last son of the miracle. But in any case, you die. Yep, sounds pretty goddamn biblical to me. 
but a third ending is possible with the free Wounds of Eventide DLC update, provided certain conditions are met. You instead free Escobar's main knight from her mind control, and you and she confront the actual nature of the miracle, an elder's horror that is taking advantage of the Nation of Custodia's believed religious guilt and desire for penance from said guilt, and thus free the nation from the suffering they are under by this evil. But with the penitent one only being alive due to the miracle's power, he dies again. And he is laid to rest by this lady knight in Deal Gracias. This is considered to be the true ending of the game. So again, there is no way for the main character to survive this game. It is pretty heavy, but is well done in its pixelated sprite-based gameplay. The iconography of this game is really what sells the whole thing. We have played Metroidvanias before, so of course we know by now there will be areas we cannot access until we retrieve certain skills or items that allow us to access those areas. So traversing the map multiple times is necessary to complete the game. But that is just the means to access this dark story. What the Game Kitchen really did to set this game apart was to take deep inspiration from their own culture, specifically the annual celebration of Holy Week, which for those of you out there who do not know, is one of the most important weeks in the Christian calendar, a celebration of the last week of the mortal life of Jesus Christ. From his arrival into Jerusalem upon a donkey, to leading up to his Last Supper, with his 12 most faithful followers, his betrayal by Judas Iscariot, arrest by Roman troops at the order of Pontius Pilate and his trial, his torture on the way to his site of execution, execution by Roman order, and supposed resurrection on the Sunday following. So a Sunday to Sunday celebration. This is a serious celebration throughout Spain and Latin America, but the city of Seville really goes all out. With a week of processions, visceral reenactments, and worship of various holy items and masterpieces of art that were created since the Middle Ages onward to reflect the sorrowful and gory nature of the spectacle and humanity's desire to seek repentance for all sins past and future by being reminded of the miserable death of a Jewish man who claimed to be the Son of God. And when I say that, I mean often these works, statues, paintings, grotesques, and the like, were designed to be as bloody a spectacle as possible to envision in the viewer the depth of torment and suffering Christ was going through to seek absolution before God for the sake of a fallen humanity. Seville is hardly the only city that used to be part of the Roman and later Christian Empire that has such visceral works in its museums and churches, especially since many of these art pieces were commissioned by churches and wealthy patrons seeking absolution for their earthly sins by essentially buying off God by making art that glorified him but there is a high concentration of them here. It is that city, its celebration, its almost Bosch-like holy art, its ossuaries and architecture that they drew from to develop the world of blasphemous. And holy shit, was it effective. I can see how I got confused as to the nature of this game at first. You do collect a sort of souls mechanic as the game progresses, called guilt in the game universe, that you can turn in for access to skills and abilities as the game goes on. You also collect various trinkets that you can add to your rosary in-game to augment your abilities and survivability. Most of what they do are explained in the menu screen if you choose to read it, along with a lot of the other things you can collect to further explain what is going on in the world, especially the bones of various little saints of the miracle, all of whom died horribly in one way or another, that you can add to an ossuary along the way. 
meaning you can miss huge chunks of the plot if you are unwilling to read or do your own research. And the difficulty can be severe in many places of the game, requiring you to die over and over to achieve forward momentum and success. But no, it is far more about searching out abilities and items to diverse areas of the game you cannot at the start. Just with the tone of religious horror. You know, I've used that term several times so far in this review, and I guess I should explain what I mean. In broad strokes, religious horror is a horror subgenre that states real-world religion and its beliefs are undisputed fact, particularly Christianity. Demonic possession is the usual means of conveying the horror. So anything like The Exorcist or Rosemary's Baby are perhaps the best-known types of media for this horror. But also movies involving witchcraft can be part of a religious horror. But in recent years, there has been an inversion of this trope, called the goddess evil trope, in which a benevolent god of the Abrahamic religions is in fact an outsider, an alien, or eldritch horror, on the same level as Dread Cthulhu, or one of the many other Lovecraftian mythos monsters, trying to kill or suppress humanity for its own ends. And if you want a good example of this type of horror, I highly recommend the series of novels by author Edward M. Erdlach called the Mercabarita series of weird westerns about a Hasidic gunfighter destined to dispatch the great old ones, of which it turns out Yahweh is one. And while I do subscribe to this latter trope, I mean something slightly different. So let's get into Oversharing Corner! which we haven't been to in a while. You see, I was raised Catholic. None of what the adults around me who gathered to worship each and every Sunday made any sense with what they were talking about. But it certainly seemed like a lot of blood, misery, gore, and a lot of other horrific allegory that was supposed to be just that, allegory, but which the adults took for fucking fact, especially when the Easter season floated around every year. I was also taught at a private religious school for my whole education, which doubled down on this mortal hopelessness in pursuit of everlasting glory. And before you Protestants and religious fundamentalists out there get a swelled head, you fuckers are no better. In fact, your heavy, heavily puritanical ideals made things even worse and have had a far more devastating effect on the development of the United States than anything. You just don't have to tithe back to Rome, you tax-dodging elitist fucks. When I say religious horror, though, I mean the slow dread of reinforced hellish misery. The visuals of hate and torture in the pursuit of supposed cleansing of the spirit for reward not in this life, but only after death in which one can be righteous and spend all eternity praying to a supreme being who, despite omnipotence and omnipresence, requires a legion of followers shoring up its ego. The realization that everyone around you is happily bought into a socially acceptable death cult from which there is no escape, and in fact that the powers that be of society are definitely interested in forcing as the law of the land to further solidify their own power. That in and of itself is the real definition of this type of horror. Not cheap jump scares or evisceration in the dark by a variety of ghouls, hairy monsters, killer clowns, or whatever the killer du jour is. I'm not trying to shit all over anyone's beliefs. Well, not too much, anyway. But with age and life experience, I could no longer in good conscience, or with any form of reasoning and ethics, believe in or put credence in this type of belief system. Or any other humans have created. To me, they all fail the sniff test, as it were. Not that science is any more perfect, 
but it at least tries to get a better handle on our life for our benefit and betterment, provided when it's not used against us or for war. And we can very much develop morals and ethics outside of faith, and have been for centuries, and which we need to continue to do. Blasphemous is that marriage of the latter kind of religious horror and the slow decay of morals and sanity I just described. And it hits a little too close to home for me. It is a very uncomfortable game for me. But that does not make it bad. It just makes it more effective for me. As I have said before, one of the major issues with horror is that it is not always effective. If you are not bothered by blood and guts, or even actually enjoy it as entertainment, that doesn't work. If you are unbothered by certain types of themes or various creatures, then that type of horror doesn't work. Even our inborn fear of the dark all humans come with can be inverted and made useless against certain people, meaning horror is not as universally as effective as many would like to believe. We see this all the time in games, too. This form of entertainment is awash in scary titles, most of which have to rely on atmosphere, jump scare, and visceral gore to get across their terror. We have games that are cheap shit and get rightly lambasted by the community, but we also have those titles we keep putting on pedestals when we really, really shouldn't. But even the good ones are not universally effective, and the loudest voices with the least to lose are usually the ones who open their fucking faces and empty skulls and state which we should revere and which we should damn. I choose a different option, that which worked both for and against me, and Blasphemous was that surprise title that made me more uncomfortable than I would have liked, despite not explicitly being a scary title. As far as real-world sales and reception, Blasphemous did pretty good, with between high 70s and low 80s on Metacritic, and general 7 out of 9 to, 10 on, to 9 out of 10 across the reviewers. The atmosphere, design choices, and setting originality were praised, and by 2021, the game had reached over 1 million players across all release platforms. That's kind of skimpy as far as information on how well the game did, but you know my stance on what I think of critics. I know it got a lot of good praise within the community this show is in, so it was that which decided on me giving this a shot. That and something else. That something else is that I was looking for a good Metroidvania in the vein of Symphony of the Night, and I had been disappointed by another game community darling, Hollow Knight. While pretty and certainly dark, Hollow Knight failed to catch on with me or scratch that particular itch, and Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, somewhat ironic considering who made that game and his relationship to that fated Konami franchise, also failed to grab my attention. But Blasphemous and later Infernax, did. Who can say why? They just did. And as I said, Blasphemous is worth every penny I paid for it. Blasphemous is a good title. Hell, a great title. Overall, fairly short, and thankfully, not a memory hog on the PC. The Game Kitchen was able to do more with pixel graphics from the SNES and Genesis era than all the modern engines with their focus on lifelike graphics and being able to see every blue vein on the intestines your character is currently munching on ever could. And it was all with just atmosphere and realistic dread filtered through the time-honored safety net of fiction. Custodia may not be Spain, 
and the penitent nun may not be a misdirected inquisitor, but we get the idea nonetheless. You should be fucking scared. Not because of the miracle mutants or an oppressive god, but more of the delirious, mind-controlled populace around you, who are hurting in a way they cannot articulate, but can neither correct their course or choose not to. Instead seeking solace in otherworldly hopes, while throwing away their lives to have that they have in front of them. And of the pursuit of power in that vein, seeking to be the top man, the head of the religion, the holder of the sway, and what that may mean and what it may do to the person who seeks to control the hearts and minds of those who know on a base level of consciousness that only death is real and terrifyingly inevitable. Religion is not truly the opiate of the masses, but it can be as just as effective of controlling them as any state-based authority. And in the world of blasphemous, that control may come with obtuse names and behind masks of gold and with smiling grateful flagellants, but it can be even more monstrous than it appears on the surface. At least that kind of horror can be put to the sword. Thank you for listening. Deleted Saves would like to thank Brad, Keith Gasper, Orden Wells, and Mast Lama for being patrons of the show. If you would like to become a patron of the show, please go to patreon.com and check out Deleted Saves podcast. All donations go directly towards maintaining the show itself. Thank you.